Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and for a long time I've maintained a list of topics that I knew I wanted to get to on the podcast, and near the top of that list was the use of vasopressors in the Pediatric Emergency Department. Now I guess I can check that one off the list, since I recently had a chance to sit down with Matt Zakoff, a critical care attending at Cincinnati Children's. I recently sat down with Dr. Zakoff over Zoom, and we talked about the best initial presser choice, when it's okay to use a peripheral IV for pressors, and some emerging evidence and new therapies in the pipeline. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Matt, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a, an instructor in pediatric critical care medicine at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, um, where I split my time between clinical care and a 35-plus bed unit. Um, and then the rest of my time is doing medical education research using virtual reality and augmented reality to improve clinical competence. And thank you for taking time to, to chat with me about pressors um, in the ED. It's a topic that you could either think a ton about or not think too much about, but I think it's that latter approach that gets us into trouble. Uh, for a little bit of perspective, back when I was a resident, you know, gazing off into the you know, distant horizon in the past, we just started kids on dopamine because it was what we understood at the time and it was readily available and you could do it peripherally. Um, and that has evolved into being able to use epinephrine, which we can start through a peripheral IV. But this one size fits all approach, and I think you'd agree, can be dangerous at times and it doesn't serve the unique needs of a lot of patients that come into, especially a large pediatric ED. And I wondered if you could share your thoughts on what are some general principles about starting blood pressure support medicines, vasopressors in the emergency department setting? Sure. I think that, I think the basic send home point that I want to get across is give the patient what they need, uh, regardless of your access issues or concerns, knowing that we can efficiently get them the access that they need and adjust moving forward. But, um, giving them what they need is principal thing that needs to happen to keep the patient alive. Got it. And, you know, is there a time when it's too early to start a presser, too late to start a presser? Um, should we be thinking about, you know, after a certain target of fluids or, you know, going after a map normalized to age, or is there just not a one size, you know, fits all, um, situation there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think you're right in that our limitations in pediatrics is that our population is so heterogeneous that our ability to implement standard approaches like our adult colleagues don't quite work. Um, so the general frame of reference that I would have is be thoughtful in terms of when to prompt questioning about next steps, but dogma in only X amount of fluid or must do X amount of fluid or this presser versus that presser is going to lead to, to failure and limitations if you're not flexible to the physiology that your patient's showing. So for example, if your exam doesn't show any concerns for a cardiac etiology of shock, they don't have a down liver, they have a normal cardiac silhouette on chest x-ray, they've responded appropriately to your initial fluid boluses, 
more fluid is always fine, especially in the ED context, right? All of the data about too much fluid resuscitation is days and days over the ICU and being significantly fluid overloaded, right? You're never gonna get a negative response from us from giving more fluid downstairs in that initial resuscitation. We can always protect their airway, we can always support their lungs, we can always move that fluid later, but adequately ensuring preload is by far the most important thing that can be done and the safest way to mitigate shock. All right, and I think the as long as you're paying attention to the kid with cardiac dysfunction, which unfortunately is pretty rare in kids, um, what would you say are some of the biggest missteps that are made in the emergency department where we miss cardiac dysfunction? Because that really plays into the tree of deciding, you know, how much fluids to give, which drugs to choose. You know, what do we miss most often? What should we be looking out for? to make sure that we're not overlooking a kid that is showing signs of, of cardiac dysfunction. Yeah, I, I think it's just, the problem is you're right, is if we don't see it that often, you have 50 kids come through in respiratory distress from bronchiolitis, and then maybe one of them is gonna actually be myocarditis and it's cardiac dysfunction in the background. So it's all about keeping those hurdles and fundamental steps in place that are done every single time. So putting your hands on the patient and feeling for a liver edge is key, especially in those little babies. And then being responsive to what you see with your initial interventions. So if you're giving that first fluid bolus and midway through, you see the heart rate going up and their SATs going down, that's not what's supposed to happen. So it's okay to pause, reassess, and reinterpret as opposed to initiate the bolus, walk away, reset, um, and having blinders to how that your interventions impacting the patient in their current status. Right, you just don't plop the patient on a you know quote unquote sepsis pathway or shock pathway, and say we're going to get the sixty per kilo, and then if that doesn't work, you know here's some epinephrine at each mm -hmm. step at each increment. Be reassessing: is this the right thing to do? Is this working? Is this making them better? Is this making it worse? Um, you can't just set it and forget it. Right. And that's, and that's just not an ED thing. It's the pick you too, right? We are just as likely to kind of lock in on our pathway, cause and ask for an intervention and walk away and get burned in that situation. So it's just being thoughtful and ensuring that what we think is supposed to happen is happening, or at least having our staff looking out for those things. All right. Perfect. So let's talk about presser choice, because I think this generates a um, a lot of head scratching and sometimes anxiety in the pediatric emergency department. Um, not just the choice of which one to use, but even like getting it started. There seems to be um, some inertia and just mental challenges to making that leap, making that commitment to put a kid on pressers. Um, sometimes it feels like a, you know, a binary choice, like you've made that decision and then you have to stick to it, which we all know is not true. Um, but it does generate a ton of conversation, you know, before you actually um, start the drug. So what, um, in your opinion, are some of the best options for pressers in the ED setting um, for, you know, garden variety sepsis? I know there's no such thing, but for a child that um, has shown some signs of being fluid responsive, um, but is still not adequately perfusing, their MAP is low, they've got you know, signs of compromised peripheral perfusion, what, what would be the best first choice in that scenario? Yeah, so so um, I like to try to keep it as simple as possible of a couple 
branching logic questions to kind of characterize how much the patient is augmenting their own physiology to manage the shock and what areas that I can intervene on. Um, so preload is its own separate bucket of have you adequately preloaded the patient, Assume, assuming that's the case, and now you're still left with contractility and afterload to augment, there's kind of three questions that I like to think through. So the first one is heart rate. So is my patient tachycardic? But not only are they tachycardic, are they as tachycardic as I would expect for someone with that degree of shock? So phrasing it another way, is the heart rate component of cardiac output already optimized? If their heart rate's already tacking away significantly higher than normal, whipping that faster is probably not gonna be your best bet to augment their cardiac output further. The next bucket is afterload that I think about. So how is my patient's perfusion? What's my sense of his or her SVR? Is my patient warm and vasodilated or are they cool and clamped down? So again, is the afterload component of cardiac output already optimized? If so, adding more afterloads probably not gonna be helpful. And then the last bit is contractility. So do I have any indicators of my patient's cardiac function? And that goes back to what we talked about earlier about liver edge, response to fluid bolus. And if those things are making you concerned, an echo sooner rather than later to help augment that. Once I've thought through those questions, um, then the branching logic's pretty simple. So if my patient um, is warm, vasodilated, i.e. their SVR is not maximized already by themselves, then I'm thinking that's gonna be my target of intervention. So if my patient is already good and tachycardic and augmenting their heart rate, norepinephrine is the only thing that's gonna be helpful in that situation to help increase afterload. If my patient is warm, vasodilated, brisk pulses, but yet isn't as tachycardic as I would expect, then in that situation, you have to augment both. So norepinephrine to help with the afterload, but adding low-dose cardiac epi to help with that heart rate component. On the counter side, if the patient is cold, clamped down, they've already ramped their SVR all the way up, flogging them with some more norepi is probably not gonna be helpful. And if I'm not seeing other signs of cardiac dysfunction, which gets more nuanced in the management of that, epinephrine is going to be your best bet to help with contractility uh, and heart rate with being the only thing left that you have to do to augment their cardiac output. So, so that would be kind of my first line branching logic is what's the patient doing already um, versus where are there gaps that I can intervene to augment a different component of cardiac output. Got it. And so we have many patients that come into the emergency department. They've got um, existing central lines, kids with complex GI problems, um, kids that are being managed for their oncologic issues. And that's great because we have central lines in those children um, and we can start pressors in a very um, educable and nuanced fashion. What about those kids where central access is challenging um, or we only have a peripheral line? What's your advice in those scenarios? Use what you got. So if they, I would use the right thing regardless of the access. So say you're on the, on the fence where the heart rate isn't as high, but they're, they're kind of clamped down, but not all the way, then by all means, epi 
we know is a little bit safer to be peripherally, especially if it gets out into the tissue. But if your patient should receive norepi and that is the best medication for them based on their physiology, use the norepi through your peripheral IV, run maintenance fluids behind it so that if it does extravasate, it's diluted out into the tissue and get them going, get them safer to move out of the trauma bay so that we can then work on that access that's more definitive and central. Got it. So you're really not just setting the norepi, you really have to have an active plan to get that kid central access safely, um, whether yeah. it's downstairs or upstairs. And I'm thinking in my mind, the child with you know cerebral palsy contractures be a very difficult central access. Maybe they've, they've had it before. Um, how long yeah. is too long on um, norepi or epi peripherally? Or is it really just based on how the child does as long as you're being I'm really careful about extravasation risk and, and having a fluid carrier running behind that drug. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's good to reflect on why, are we, why do we even care about augmenting their cardiac output and blood pressure. It's to avoid hypoperfusion of those vital organs that are causing significant more damage, morbidity, mortality, right? So if I'm left with saving a child's life versus tissue damage from extravasation, I'll save their life every time and tolerate that tissue extravasation, right? So if you were saying the right thing to do for this patient who is altered in shock, not using their vital organs, is norepinephrine through a peripheral IV, then start the norepinephrine through a peripheral IV. We've done it and we've run it for 30 minutes, an hour, two hours while trying to struggle to get central access because that's just what they need. Now, in those situations, you're going to go kind of gangbusters with fluids and other whatnot to help augment it and keep the dose as low as possible. But I, in my mind, it doesn't make sense to hold back the right therapy um, if you actually believe that they need that therapy. If you feel like, yeah, they could live without it, then they probably don't need it. Got it. Got it. And what's next? What are some of the um, you know, on the verge type questions that critical care docs are asking about um, vasopressors and blood pressure support in children. Are there drugs that um, have been overlooked that you're looking at again? Um, are there medicines that are in the in the pipeline? Are there new thoughts about combining medicines? I'd love to get your thoughts on what's next. Yeah, so I think things that are kind of walking their way out the door would be dopamine, um, just in the sense that we know there's no sense to have dopamine where you're having mixed receptor activity and they've shown higher risk of um, cardiac arrhythmias and uh, bad outcomes associated with higher doses of dopamine when you can use low dose epi for the, the beta component and you can use norepi for the pure alpha component. So people feel much more comfortable with augmenting those two agents as opposed to trying to thread the needle as to what dose of dopamine and what you're actually accomplishing in the moment. So. Um, we're generally not using it anymore. And I think that's becoming fairly uh, accepted across at least the larger um, pediatric ICUs. Um, things that we are working on our own kind of processes of when to pull the trigger sooner rather than later, the vasopressin uh, in shock, there's growing data and evidence that especially in your acidotic patients, you're gonna get much better response from vasopressin as opposed to norepi because of the down regulation of the receptors for norepinephrine and adrenergic receptors in those patients. So often 
uh, a lower dose of vasopressin will give you more bang for your buck, whereas titrating up that norepinephrine is not actually having a lasting impact. So um, getting comfortable with in what patient context and situations do you initiate vasopressin first as opposed to norepi or what's your trigger for starting vasopressin sooner? Um, there's been lots of talk around angiotensin II um, that was rolled out in adults and was going to be this game changer, but then there was no mortality uh, benefits seen related to that. In PEDS, it's mostly used right now as a salvage therapy, so you've already maximized um, two agents. Um, and at that point, you can think about adding angiotensin II in those patients to see if it's helpful. We do that maybe a handful of times a year. We now have the, way, the ability to uh, assess a direct renin level, which if significantly elevated makes it more likely that your patient would benefit from angiotensin too. So we can be a little bit more thoughtful in who we're targeting that therapy on. Um, and then the other medication that exists in the PEDS world and is used a whole bunch depending on your center and the age of your patient that the adults don't talk about as much as calcium. Um, the NICU group, the CICU group, all the neonates, calcium is probably their favorite vasopressor and inotrope, um, given how responsive uh, the infant myocardium is to calcium and how neonates are just naturally low on total body reserves of calcium. So um, having a low threshold for initiating that in pediatrics and then to what age group that holds true at Another way of phrasing is when do you actually transition between infant peds and adult physiology of where calcium is going to be beneficial in a patient who's not just hypocalcemic and you need to fix that. Fascinating, Matt. Thank you very much for taking time to sit down with me today and chat about pressors. I know I, I certainly learned quite a lot and you know, mostly that you should really think about where you work, what you have available, have early conversations with a critical care specialist and do what's right for the patient, you know, regardless of the circumstances you have and reassess, reassess, reassess. My thanks again to Dr. Matt Zakoff for sitting down with me and chatting for this episode. I hope it will inspire you to look at your practices for vasopressor use in the emergency department and how protocols and care pathways are used at your institution. For more great educational content, you can check out my site, pemblog.com. Follow me on Twitter at PemTweets, or check out the Facebook page. I'd love it if you left a comment or a review, as I really appreciate the feedback. You can subscribe to Pem Currents on any of your favorite podcast services, where I've made the back catalog completely available. For Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.